Get your notes ready, and we're going to study the Word. This morning, I've entitled the message, True Christians Press On Regardless. Press On Regardless. If you would, put out there to the side of that title, P-O-R, Press On Regardless. Uh, In the early 1980s, when I was in middle school, somewhere along the way, somehow, I found a subscription to a magazine, a monthly magazine called Off-Road Magazine. And Off-Road Magazine was uh, produced here in America, but it featured off-roading from all over the world, four-wheel drives and off-road type thing. And so I remember just as a young man, I was cutting grass and I would, I would make a little bit of money and I, would, I had a few things that I enjoyed. But one of the things that I really enjoyed was occasionally going and driving Jeeps and driving trucks for Frank Chaplin and Colvin Pinkerton and others that had a, a, a ranch here not too far away. And so I was really into four-wheeling. Well, one time I received the magazine, I would wait for it every month. And I got it, and the entire edition of this magazine, or the, t- the entire copy, was devoted to something called the P.O.R., or the Press On Regardless. The P.O.R., or the Press On Regardless, was an off-road rally of small European cars in the back roads of Europe. So across Germany, across Austria, across France, across Spain and Italy, they would run a race, a rally, that would go hundreds and hundreds of miles. And it was an intense race. The whole idea was the race was not only to to finish first, but to finish at all. So they were high speed running through dirt roads and gravel roads, through through, uh, fields and across rivers and streams. And it was an amazing race. And the whole idea was it was an endurance race, uh, a durability race. And so these cars would be completely tricked out, ready to go. And um, I got into following that rally race. And even today, one of my favorite things to do is to just kind of watch the highlights of the latest POR race some 30 years later. I liked the fact that even though you might hit a wall or hit a tree or uh, come off uh, uh, some embankment and uh, the car might even flip over, And people in the surrounding roads would come flip the car back over, and if they could keep going, they would keep going. They might wipe off a whole fender. They might lose the hood. They might lose their windshield. But the whole idea was, we are going to keep going until we can't go anymore. It is the press on regardless. Well, it wasn't too long before I realized the spiritual reality in that. That in life, we are going to have all kinds of major setbacks, maybe even some crashes. And the Lord Jesus has called us in this fallen life to press on regardless, to keep the goal in mind. And that is exactly what we see the Apostle Paul showing us in this great passion, this intense moment of this letter of saying we are called to press on regardless. So let's run to the text. Let's read the text. This is a continuation of really the text from the last few Sundays. Uh, We want to remember that all of the scripture fits together, especially in a letter like this. Um, And 
uh, we want to continue with what the Apostle Paul has been. It, let's look at the background a little bit. Remember where we were last week. We'll read the text, and then we're going to blast forward. So background reminders. Number one, for those of you that are brand new to us in this study, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul, who is in prison in Rome, and he is writing to a church in a city called Philippi, which is modern-day Greece. And so he's writing to people from his trouble to people who are also in trouble. They're experiencing persecution similarly as he is experiencing persecution. Also some other things going on in that church. But notice number two. In this section that we've been studying, it's basically all of chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 3 through chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is passionately reminding the Philippians that, fill it in, knowing Christ through faith in him alone not faith in oneself, but faith in Christ alone, is everything. That is everything that we need to know about salvation in Jesus Christ. It is the key picture. You need to know that Christ saves you. You cannot save yourself. He calls us to come to him in faith. So he was warning them, fill this in, he warns them of the dogs. Very strong language. Again, this is the passionate apex of, uh, of the intensity, he warns them of the dogs who teach a distorted message of salvation, fill it in, salvation by good works. He's, he's saying these people are totally wrong, this is heretical. Look at the next point. He explains that salvation is totally dependent on what some call the exchanged life. Fill that in, the exchanged life. This is an important concept for you if you're seeking to understand what Christianity is really all about. You see, the exchange life is this, is that Christ becomes our sin, he becomes our sin, and he receives the wrath of God, really, in our place, in the, in the place of those who believe in him. You can read Romans 5 on that. We see that the wrath of God is poured out upon Jesus Christ for us. And then look at the next part. So Christ becomes our sin, and we are given Christ's righteousness, and we receive eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish under the wrath of God, would not perish, but have, what does it say, everlasting life in that key verse of the New Testament. So we are given Christ's righteousness. So we should never trust in our own righteousness that comes from trying to obey the law. We need to trust in Christ's righteousness. Number three. This section, chapter 3, verse 7 through 4, 1, is perhaps the high point of intensity. We've already mentioned that. There was a graph last week. Several of you said that was helpful to understand the emphasis of the letter. Number 4, last week we ended in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, where Paul states that his eventual resurrection to eternal life depends totally on identifying, it, it depends on totally identifying with Jesus Christ by faith. So Paul knows this. He knows that being found in him, which is what it says in verse 9, leads to his own resurrection. So he's saying, if I want to be resurrected from the dead, I must be found in Christ, to be found to be his, to be known by him, for him to be known by me, that, that I know him and I am with him and that he is with me. And so he says in verse 9, I, I, I just desire to be found in him. Do you desire to be found in him when it's all said and done where are you going to be found are you going to be found in him or without him 
That's what the Apostle Paul was getting at. He was saying, I desire to be found in him, knowing that if I am, that I am going to be in his resurrection. Notice this, fill this in. Paul desires to know him. How does he desire to know him? He desires to know him in his resurrection. He desires to share in his sufferings. We talked about that last week a little bit. Just like a husband that dearly loves his wife, when his wife is suffering, he, he, he so loves her that very often we've heard that people have said, I just wanted to take her suffering upon myself. I wanted to have her suffering upon me instead of upon her. To share in his sufferings. We see that Christ takes our sin on the cross and he dies to it. And the whole reason that he would do that is that he was not living for his own glory, but he was living for the glory of the Father. So he dies to his self and he lives unto God the Father just as we are called to die to ourselves and live unto Christ. And so we see that Paul's great desire is to know him. So let's read the text and let's see where this goes. He has just been talking about the fact that he is going to rejoice in the resurrection that there is in Christ. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained it, this, or am already perfect, so he hasn't already risen from the dead yet, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. But he goes on. And in verse 17, we see where all this is going. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many, and look at this in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You see, this is what Paul is so very concerned about. He's so very concerned that, that some have, who have heard the gospel are going to leave the gospel for belief in other things. They're going to leave the gospel for love of other things. And that is what he is concerned for his Philippian brothers and sisters. He is warning them. He's warning them of the dogs, the evildoers, the people who are trying to get them to go back to the law. He is worried and he is concerned that they are going to retreat to loving the world instead of loving Christ. And so here we see their end is their destruction. Look at verse 19. These who leave Christ. Verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And then he says, but, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lonely body to be like his glorious body. See, that's the resurrection again. That's what we left off with last week. It keeps coming back around. He keeps going back to the end goal of finally being resurrected out of this earthly life, out of the sinful flesh, and finally 
being with Christ in glory. Look at verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So that's the resurrection creative power of God who can even recreate that which was tainted with sin. And so we see in this glorious picture that we are called to continue in Christ, to not fall away. Well, why true Christians press on is what we want to look at. He's saying, I am called to press on. You are called to press on. Let's keep pressing on. Number one, true Christians press on because they know they have not yet arrived. This is an important thing that Christians, uh, true Christians really do understand that when I got saved, it's not over. Yes, my salvation is secure in him, but I'm not there yet. He still has me on this path that brings him glory of living by faith, learning to trust him, learning who he is so that when I get to heaven that this life will have brought him glory by faith. Without faith it's impossible to please God but with faith we can please him and in fact we even see faith in Jesus Christ causes all things to be possible. And so notice here with me, number one, true Christians press on because they know that they haven't arrived. Look at verse 12. It says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. And then again, he reiterates it, verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Here's the point. Some of the false teachers were coming in and saying, Oh, you mean you're still sinning? Well, why are you still sinning? You, if you would do all of these things right, and if you were truly of God, you would no longer be sinning like everybody else. And so that is, that is a doctrine called sinless perfection. And there were some false teachers that would come in and they would purport to be sinlessly perfect. Now, before you think that that's so far off, there are people preaching today in America and around the world that claim to be sinlessly perfect. And they, they can even, some of them can even tell you the last time that they sinned 15 or 20 or 30 years ago. And so they, they, they proclaim to be sinlessly perfect. I know, sounds strange. Uh, I know some of you think... I'm married to one of those. Well, no, not really. I mean, let's look and let's see here. Um, We haven't arrived yet. Well, where are we seeking to arrive? First of all, fill this in. In heaven. And this is the resurrected state. So Paul is saying, I haven't gotten there yet. And I, even though I desire to be there, whether physically or spiritually, I'm not in my final state of where I'm going to be. Not only in heaven, but also in holiness. And that's what I mean by spiritually. Paul is recognizing that he's not perfect yet. He's still in the flesh, and he still succumbs to the flesh. And there's still struggles that are going on in his life. And so we want to recognize that true Christians just simply recognize the race is not finished yet, and it's not finished until I am finally with Christ in heaven and made perfect and complete. The second thing that true Christians press on because of is this, because they know the course that is before them. This is on page two. Um, True Christians press on because they know the course before them, even though there are, fill it in, alternatives. He says, but one thing I do. Now, 
the Apostle Paul is not saying that there are not other options. His point here is, I have chosen one option in the way that I'm going to live my life, in the direction and the goal for which I'm going. He's saying, this one thing I do, and forgetting what lies behind, but pressing on toward the mark. That's, that's where he's going with this. Well, this one thing. You see, honoring God, fill this in, honoring God will always have competition in your life. There's always going to be something else you can do besides honoring God. There are other dreams that you can follow. There are other things where you can spend your time and your money and your life and your energy and the trajectory of your life. There's always going to be competition vying for your attention and your affections. But notice this. The Bible and history are filled with people who got distracted from God's call upon their life. There, there, there's, we, we see throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament and we see throughout Christian history that there were people who apparently started off on the right track with God, but in the end, their real colors were shown by the fact that they were ultimately distracted from God. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. It's right here on your, line, on your outline. For Demas, in love with this present world, can you underline that? In love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So we see one who, because of the, the whole reason that he left is maybe, maybe he was preaching with Paul, maybe he was traveling with Paul and everything else. And every time they went into town, you know, who knows what it was? Was it material items? Was it fame? Was it... Um, companionship of others was it sexuality we, we don't know what it was but we just know that Demas loved this present world more than he loved the next world and so there's always going to be alternatives that are possible for us to run off to but I believe that true Christians in the in, in the grand scheme of things they're going to recognize that there is one thing to do and there's one way to proceed in the trajectory of their life you see, true Christians press on because they know the course in a second way. So we need to recognize that there are alternatives, but look at the, set, the next point here, even though they have failed in the past. This is how true Christians stay on course in that they know the course that is before, before them. They are called to forget what lies behind. Many non-believers wrongly think that their sins of the past keep them from God. There's many people that if you were to say to them, well, why don't you um, put your faith in Christ? Why don't you follow after Christ? They would simply say, oh, well, you don't know what I've done. Um, you don't know what all the things that I've done that are against God are. You don't, you don't know what's really in my heart. You don't know my sinful past. And um, that's simply a, a, a incomplete understanding of the true gospel of Christ because those of us who know what God, the gospel of Christ shows us is, is that there is no sin that God cannot forgive except for the rejection of him, the ultimate rejection of him. But it is only their unbelief in the present, fill this in, it's only their unbelief in the present that cuts them off from God. That is the only thing that gets, cuts them off. You see, the Bible and history are filled with people who experience God's grace after failure. Now, I, I have taken some time to outline several of these here. 
And I want to quickly show them with you because they're so powerful and they're so helpful. I hope to you as an individual, perhaps you're a Christian who has just looked at certain failures in your life and you think, man, there's no way that God can use me. There's no, maybe, maybe I don't really even know God or maybe I've burned all of my bridges with God and there's no hope any longer to go on. Well, let's look and see who God calls his own, loves and uses. First of all, Moses. Moses, the great one who would lead God's people out of bondage in Egypt. Moses, the great one that would lead them, uh, the stiff-necked, obstinate people, through the wilderness for 40 years up to the edge of the promised land. Well, what was he? He was a second-degree murderer and then a fugitive for 40 years. And he made God angry multiple times. He was an imperfect leader. And you can read all about that through the book of Exodus and Numbers. But God forgave and used Moses multiple times. Due to not following God's instructions, God did not permit Moses to lead God's people into the promised land. So there were some consequences. There were some earthly consequences to Moses' sins. And in each one of these, I'm going to give you, the main point is, is that God still works through us. I want to be careful as we look at that, though, to not think, oh, no problem. I can sin. God can forgive. God will still use me. My sin is no big deal. I want you to see God still works and uses, but there are consequences. And many times we see this with God's people in these things. And so there are very often consequences. And so, um, you know, Romans 6.1 says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the strongest negative in the Greek language is used after that. He says, may that never be. And so how shall we who have died to sin continue to sin and, and live therein? The idea is, is that if you're really a Christian, you can't just go live in sin. You can't, you can't be uh, under the mastery of sin. Um, and so we, we need to remember those calls and those warnings. But Moses teaches us that that God can use imperfect people. But in the same regard, we can still see in his life, fill this in, that sin will cost you. Um, I remember Pat Cronin, who's now with the Lord. He was a pastor, a young pastor here, one of our interns at first. But I remember he preached a sermon where he talked about the fact that he would tell his sons, sons, you never, ever, 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 never, ever get away with sin. You never get away with it. There is always a cost, and there's always a consequence. In one thing, Christ pays for that. But in another sense, in many times in our life, we, in, we injure ourselves and we injure our future because of our sin. And that is certainly what happened even with a man who had received God's grace and been used by God like Moses. He did not enter the promised land. Look at the next one, King David. King David... The great psalmist, the great leader of God's people, a man called a man after God's own heart, he is guilty of coveting another man's wife. He's guilty of adultery. He's guilty, effectively, of stealing her and then lying about it, lying to Uriah, and then he's guilty of murder. And we see all of that story in 1 Samuel 11 and 12, and we see it mentioned, though, in Acts chapter 13, that even though David was imperfect, God comes and he uses him. You see, he is called a man after God's own heart. Granted, he experienced the painful consequences of his sin with Bathsheba for the rest of his life. The 
agony of a broken family, the agony of, of, of children that are, are, are a tremendous, tremendous difficulty. We see that here. And one of the things that we can learn, just like with Moses, sin will cost you. With David, we see that sin will make you stupid. His sin caused him to do stupid things. And, and being the king of Israel and looking down upon a woman when he should have been at war and instead he's sitting in the castle and he gets tempted, carried away and enticed by his own lust and it brings death into his life in a very, very painful way. So sin will make you do stupid things. And so, but nevertheless, God is working. God is working with Moses. He's working with David. What about the prophet Elijah? Powerfully used by God. And, and you can read that all through 1 Kings 17, 18, 19. But then he gets exhausted. He gets exhausted and then depressed. And he just has a breakdown, a total breakdown. But we see that God comes and works in Elijah's life and restores him. You see, burn, burnout is only permanent if you let it be. Don't listen to everything that you're tempted to believe when you're exhausted rest let God restore and get back in the game we see that is the picture with Elijah and so God comes and he shows us that there may be failures in the past but there's a future that he's working in and if we will let him he'll work through that now the prophet Jonah was very interesting God said go to Nineveh and what does he do he jumps on a boat headed the opposite direction he didn't even say no he just ran so Jonah runs from what God's command is, yet God still uses him. And Jonah is a victim, fill this in, victim of his own racism and hard heart. He hated the Ninevites. He hated them. He, he did not want to see them come to faith in God. He did not want to see them repent. And uh, you talk about a hard heart. That's a hard heart. And we see that all the way through, Jonah continued being negative and Jonah continued being resistant to God. Well, there's some things that we can learn there. When God, first of all, when God tells you to do something, don't run the other direction. Don't do that. Remember, he may not let you out of it. God may make you do what he's calling you, including suck you into the belly of a fish and spit you out three days later. I mean, that, that's not something that you want to go through. Now, you can go kicking and screaming at you if you want to, but I, I would recommend that you not do that. Why not live in such a way with a gracious and glorious Heavenly Father that we do what He bids us to do even when we don't want to? Because sometimes He may just cause us to do what He's calling us to do whether we submit or not initially. There's another one here. There's a guy that's called John Mark. John Mark um, was a young disciple of the Lord, and he was what we would call a young deserter of Paul. Through, though many years later, he comes around and he comes through for Paul. In fact, we find that eventually, many, many years later, after he deserts Paul and leaves him hanging while they're out on a missionary trip, we see that eventually the relationship is restored and he's actually with Paul when Paul is in prison at the end of his life. So apparently John Mark matures up, comes through, gets back in the game, and is very helpful. In fact, the Apostle Paul is writing to uh, the people at Ephesus, and he's saying, receive John Mark with gladness. 
receive him as a brother. So when you're young and you fail, you need to learn, mature, and then keep going. That's what you need to do. Um, there's in, in this present day and time, um, there's not a lot of people challenging young people to really persist and really endure and really come on, especially even in their Christian faith. The world is, this world is saying kind of give up, and there's many, there's many young Christians that are kind of hearing all the messages of the world and all the pressure of the world, and they're often doing just that. And that was the, very much the case in my generation too. The, the, my generation often heard the gospel, and then when the going got tough, they, they didn't keep going. Uh, notice this with me at the end of the one on John Mark. Sometimes young people need to toughen up, but sometimes also elders need to forgive. We see both of those things happening with John Mark. John Mark apparently toughens up as he matures and comes along, and the Apostle Paul and the others, they forgive him, and he's kind of brought back into effectiveness and usefulness. And so even though failures in the past do not always have to dictate the future, that's what we see the Apostle Paul saying here. What about the Apostle Peter? Peter is loud, impulsive, and he flat out denied the Lord three times. I mean, here in Christ's most urgent hour, in the most difficult moments when all, um, all of Roman society and all of Jewish society is coming against the Lord Jesus and about to crucify him on the night before his resurrection, the scripture tells us that Peter cursed and said, I do not even know the man. And so here we see, what, what worse thing could we do? Well, notice here, though, that there is grace with the Lord, and God knows his own. And so, first of all, I want you to just notice, Peter is the first to call Jesus the Christ. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That means the anointed one, you're the Messiah. Peter's the first one to recognize that. What a, what a beautiful thing. Peter, Peter was the only disciple that walked on water. I mean, let's not forget that. And he's the first of the 12 disciples that Jesus would appear to. And so it, Peter, just despite his open mouth insert foot habits and despite his, his explosive tongue and perhaps his, his anger, we see that Jesus beautifully restores him after his denial and after the resurrection. They're there by the Sea of Galilee and Jesus in John 21 beautifully restores him. And um, it, it's touching, it's beautiful. In fact, we even see that Peter's first sermon some days later would, would see 3,000 people come to faith in one day. Um, and you see that in Acts chapter 2. So um, failures in the past do not dictate the future um, in our relationship with God and even in um, what God has called us to do. What about the Apostle Paul? And this is the one writing the letter. The Saul of Tarsus, that's what his name was, fill it in. He was a terrorist against the early church, a full-on terrorist. He's running around, rounding people up. Um, he's even there the day that Stephen is put to death. And um, we, we, we just see, it just doesn't get any worse uh, as far as the persecution of the church uh, in the first century than the Apostle Paul. But God uses whom he chooses wherever they've been and whatever they've done. And we see that through the testimony of the life of Paul. You see, what we come to find is not how pure and squeaky clean your past is, 
um, in God's usefulness and effectiveness. No, instead we see that the qualifications for service to God is brokenness and faithfulness. God calls us to be broken to our own will, broken to our own self-reliance, and faithful to the gospel, and faithful to him. That is a man that God truly uses, especially as we see this in the New Testament era, that this is whom God is using. Um, I want you to see, and flip the page over to the last page, page three, not only do we see that they know the course before them in the, in the failures of the past, Galatians 4.9 is a key passage for this. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? He's saying, you've already come out of trying to keep the law by righteousness why do you want to go back to that he's saying it's so much better in that you have come to know God through Christ Jesus why do you want to go back to those failures and the, to that foolishness of the past so even though they failed in the past true Christians know that we can continue on in him what about this even though it's difficult you see True Christians hold on to the course that is before them, even though it is difficult. And we see this in the next phrase in verse 13. And straining toward what lies ahead. In fact, I want us to read up in verse 12 and 13 again, so you can kind of see how this all fits. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ has made me his own. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, you remember not going after everything else, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, he's letting go of the failures of the past, and then here's the next phrase that we're studying. And straining toward what lies ahead. You see, true Christians are going to go on in the course because they know it's supposed to be difficult. They know a fallen world presents great challenges to a holy life. But that requires our straining ahead to honor Christ and to honor him with our life. You see, in our present day, we are plagued with this idea. If it ain't easy, it ain't worth it. Um, in our present day, the idea that hard things are not worth your time, they're not worth your energy, they're not worth the pain, they're not worth the sacrifice. Um, but nothing could be further from the truth. And we see this first and foremost in Christ's great example. Jesus shows us that the difficulties that God goes through for us in Christ Jesus is totally worth our effort. Look at Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin which, so, which clings so closely. You see, this, all of this is even in tune with what we're studying in Philippians. Just let it all go. Look what he says. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. With endurance. That means you've you got to press even when you're tired and when it's hard. Let us run with, en with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Now look at verse 3. We see it again. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. See, friends, I, I just believe that we need to see all of the scriptures showing us that, yes, in this life, it's going to be difficult. There's going to be failures in the past, and it's going to seem like it's not even worth it sometimes. But that's why the next phrase is so important. It helps us see what true Christians are motivated by. Look at verse 3. True Christians press on because they know there is a glorious prize to come. There is a glorious prize to come. Look at verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, the finish line is finally being perfected like Christ. That is the finish line. Is that we would, and that's the one that Paul is talking about. He's talking about the resurrection from the, from the dead, coming into a state where he, he no longer is, is struggling with this sinful flesh and all of the struggles of this earthly life. But he says, I haven't attained it yet, but I am laying hold of that which has already laid hold of me. And it's very interesting as we see those phrases that, is, that, is, that are there. He's saying... I am still reaching for that which has already got me. And so this is the beauty of God's salvation with us and calling us to continue with him. His work was finished on the cross. Our work is not finished until we cross the line into heaven. So there's there's a difference that is there. We are saved and now we practice and live out and learn to walk by faith in our salvation and so this glorious prize is finally going to be ours so notice there the finish line is finally being perfected like christ that happens when we are finally with him second timothy chapter 4 verse 7 through 8 this is at the end of paul's life paul is writing to timothy and look what he says i have fought the good fight i have finished the race i have kept the face faith Henceforth, there is laid up for me, look what it says, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So these are the people who are waiting for him. These are the people who are anxiously waiting for him. And I I just want to go ahead and ask that, are you anxiously awaiting the return of Christ, or are you living for this life? Are you just kind of making all of your decisions based upon your 60, 70, 80, if you're fortunate, 90 years? Is that that what you're living for? You see, true Christians are called to be living for the next life. True Christians, what we begin to see is we understand that this course, this race is temporary. And the real one is the one that is to come. That's the real life that we're living for. And that's what we do by faith. That's what pleases God. That's what he loves to reward. And the great reward is, is that we get to experience finally and forever his righteousness. And so 
We want to just recognize his great grace that comes and saves us unto no merit of our own. And then by his grace, he empowers us. And when we hear a message like this, where we are challenged to press on, this is your opportunity to say, oh, this is how it works. That yes, I've experienced these troubles. Yes, I've experienced these failures. Yes, I've realized that this is hard, but... I'm learning what the course looks like. And as I learn about the course, I believe that true Christians are going to say, okay, this is the way God has designed it to work. And that's why Paul's writing what he's writing. The Holy Spirit protects that message all the way for us to today. We get to benefit from the picture that God has designed, that we would continue. And the final goal, fill this in, the final goal is both the state of being made perfect But it's not only the fact that we will one day be perfect, but notice this, not only the state of being made perfect, but the person who makes us perfect. And who is the person who makes us perfect except Jesus Christ? He is the one who comes and makes us complete and whole. He is the one who gives us his righteousness. And he does that the moment we get saved in our position, but finally our practice when we are finally with him will be completely and totally sanctified. It will be completely and totally holy. This is, this is part of the whole idea of progressive sanctification. That's part of the reason God has us here is that we would continue to grow and live out his salvation in our life. And this glorifies him when we by faith continue to pursue him. Notice this, that the, the great glorious prize that they are waiting on is both the gift And we want to see this, the gift and the giver cannot be separated. You see, the gift of righteousness cannot be separated from the righteous one because he is the way that we are given the righteousness. Jesus is the gift. He is the high prize that we are ultimately going for. Fill this in. Our reward is Christ and his righteousness. And so... The motivations that Paul is talking about here, the reason that he's going to press on in the faith is so that he may one day have Christ before him, that he may one day be before Christ in righteousness, not with a holiness of his own, not with a righteousness of his own, but the righteousness who comes through faith in Christ. Now, church family, I just want you to kind of think about this and look at this message. I I know that there's a lot that is here, um, but I hope and pray that this morning that you are encouraged that it's okay that we haven't arrived yet and, and that we need to press on in this goal. And it's also okay that we see all these other alternatives around us, but we are called to make Christ the one thing that we do. We are called to live for his glory and not our own or not anyone else's glory. We're called to let go of the past and we're called to embrace the difficult present, knowing that it is all going to be worth it in eternity. This is the glorious prize that awaits us and all who believe and all who continue in pursuing Christ. I pray that this morning that you would evaluate your life I pray that this morning that you would evaluate. Have you, have you been making in some way some excuse of saying, well, I've, I've failed in the past. There's no way that God, you're, you're telling God what he can forgive and what he can't forgive. You're telling God what he can heal and what he cannot heal. My friends, I, I call you to by faith, submit to the Lord, give him the failures of the past. 
I want to call you by faith to submit to the Lord and call upon him for strength in the present. Things are hard. I mean, there are long-term, horrible, difficult illnesses. There are long-term perplexing problems in family. There are long-term consequences that may be like Moses or David that we may be enduring. But let me encourage you with this, is that God knows those things and God gives grace in those things. I believe that you can find the grace of God that would glorify him even though there may be earthly consequences to our sin. God is glorified when we trust him in these things. God is glorified when we find his grace is enough. His grace is sufficient. And sometimes when the past is too painful to look at, that God gives grace for the healing and for the joy of the future. I pray that you will embrace this great truth from God's word. Let's pray together. Holy Father, I pray that this morning that we would allow your word to heal our hearts. I pray that we would allow your word to prod our hearts. I pray that we would see the way the Christian life works and that we would live like true Christians that do not fall away, that we would live like true Christians that no one has to write of us, that with tears they say that we are now enemies of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would heed this warning, see this vision, and embrace it, that we may be faithful until the day that we stand before you face to face. And there we will have your righteousness, full and complete, finally and forever, no more to sin, and only to enjoy your great glory and goodness. In the powerful name of Christ we pray, amen. Well, may God do this work in our hearts as we reflect.